0: hello and welcome to scream scene the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst my name's sarah and i'm Ben. thanks for listening to us today how are you doing ben
1: good it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood
0: but you're not wearing a sweater vest or anything.
1: No, because I would be very hot if that was yeah. the case.
0: You did take off your shoes when you came in the house, though.
1: But that's because I'm Canadian and not wearing shoes in right. Wearing shoes indoors is barbaric.
0: It is. I don't understand. <laughs> what are we watching today? Uh, I I understand it's part two of a double screamer feature. <laughs>
1: (laughs) Yes, this is the second half of Columbia Pictures' Supernatural Double Horror Show. Ah. And this is The Soul of a Monster from 1944. So, The Soul of a Monster comes from a screenplay by Edward Dean, uh, the 37-year-old Chicago-born writer of Calling Dr. Death and Jungle Woman for Universal.
0: Calling Dr. Death is one of those, like...
1: Inner Sanctum Mysteries.
0: Yeah, like photo twilight zone things Mm -hmm.
1: will jason is the director he got involved in the film industry at age 19 as a composer oh he had writing credits in almost 50 films for a wide variety of music and original songs his best known song is probably penthouse serenade which was originally written for the strange love of millie louvain in 1932, but used in many other films since then.
0: Does he have kind of a, like a set style? Like John Williams
1: music you can point to and be like, yeah, I know that that's John Williams. Um, a lot of his music was in like singing cowboy movies. <laughs> like a lot of like like, uh, like a lot of, like, country love ballad kind of stuff. Okay. He started directing shorts at age 28 in 1938, uh, before getting his first feature film in 1944, which was The Soul of a Monster.
0: Oh. I'm kind of curious um, if we'll see any relationship between, like, the act of writing music and the act of creating a film.
1: Sure. Like, is
0: there any overlap in terms of the, the creative endeavors?
1: Well, and what's also interesting is that Cry of the Werewolf was from a first-time director as well. Yeah. Um, so we'll see who, I guess, shakes out better in terms of their debuts.
0: Yeah, but this guy's directed. He just has never done a feature.
1: Right. The film's star is a bit of a surprise. It's actress Rose Hobart. And appearing in this film is sort of an unfortunate reflection of just how far the 37-year-old actress's star had declined over the years. Uh, we first saw Rose Hobart as Muriel Carew, fiancé of Dr. Henry Jekyll in the 1931 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, dang. And she was at one point a major Hollywood actress.
0: Yeah. So what is she doing in a, like, not even, like, the more expensive B-movie?
1: Yeah, so that's what I mean. Like, her career had kind of just...
0: Plummeted. eh, Yeah,
1: deteriorated over time, Um, which...
0: Happens, I guess.
1: She was 37, and not a new young star, not a Lauren Bacall, you know? Like, that's just kind of how it went and how it goes. The final death knell for her career would come in 1949 when she would be blacklisted by the House Un-American Activities Committee uh, who subpoenaed her due to her work for workers' rights as a long-standing board member of the Screen Actors Guild fighting for eight-hour workdays. Um, and then the blacklisting happened because she refused to cooperate with the committee.
0: I mean, good for her for refusing to cooperate.
1: Yeah, she, she said something along the lines, she had like a prepared statement that was along the lines of, you know, the idea that it was undemocratic to ask anyone to make a declaration of their principles and that she was just mulish enough as a person to kind of dig her heels in and say no, like when asked. Okay. So starring with her in the movie is George McCready who was 45 at the time this film was made. McCready was born in Providence, Rhode Island, and in college he was in a car crash that saw him thrust through the windshield of a Model T Ford uh, and gave him a permanent scar across his right cheek, which would later win him many villainous acting roles. For sure. He acted on stage from 1926 to 1958, often in Shakespeare. His Mm -hmm. film debut was in 1942. And in 1943, he started an art gallery in Beverly Hills with Vincent Price. <laughs> That's cool. His best known roles today are probably in 1946's Gilda, 1947's Paths of Glory, and 1970's Tora Tora Tora.
0: So his bigger roles are or, to come. Yeah, or more notable mm. roles are to come.
1: Yes. Soul of a Monster was also the feature film debut of actor Jim Bannon. Born in Kansas City, Missouri in 1911, Bannon was classified as 4F for service in World War II because of an ulcer and served instead as a civilian flight instructor. He had a career as a radio announcer on a variety of radio shows uh, before getting the role of Detective Jack Packard in I Love a Mystery, which was a serial drama. So the popularity of the I Love a Mystery Show led to Bannon getting a contract with Columbia Pictures for a three-film adaptation of the series. Uh, This movie was made first, uh, but, like, the reason he was contracted with Columbia was to make these radio show adaptations. Okay. Bannon left radio in 1946 to kind of pursue the movie career full-time. Specifically, he wanted to be a Western star he ended up pursuing that with Republic Pictures. From 1949 to 1950, he was the final actor to play uh, Red Rider in the last four films in the long-running B-movie cowboy series. And for that role, he had to dye his salt-and-pepper hair red because they made the Red Rider movies in color. The last person in the cast... Oh,
0: that's why he's called the Red Rider. Yeah. What if he's just strawberry blonde?
1: I mean, the alliteration is also important, I guess. (laughs) The last person in the cast I want to draw attention to is Jeanne Bates. She was 26 years old at the time of making this movie, and one of her first movie roles had been in Return of the Vampire as one of Bella Lugosi's victims. Uh, She was also Diana Palmer, the love interest of the Phantom, in Columbia's serial adaptation of that long-running comic strip hero. Today, however, she's likely best remembered as Mrs. X in David Lynch's Eraserhead.
0: Okay, so she's pretty young here.
1: Yes, she's 26 here.
0: Yeah, cool.
1: The Soul of a Monster saw the debut of a new type of blank cartridge for guns in movies that had been formally restricted for military use, and these were quieter than the older cartridges, which were basically just as loud as a real gun. And real guns are absurdly loud. Like, when you go to a shooting range, they give you, like, earmuffs, Earmuffs. right? So these blank cartridges had been used uh, during, like, the war because they used blanks in, like, training exercises and stuff. Um, And then in 1944 were then, like, declassified, I guess, for um, civilian use. And so they were used for the first time in Soul of the Monster. They were a great boon on set, reducing unnecessary hearing damage to actors and sound technicians. (laughs) So, as I mentioned earlier, The Soul of a Monster was released on double feature with Cry of the Werewolf on August 17th, 1944. And if you listened to our episode last week, you already know that the film was a commercial and critical failure.
0: What a surprise!
1: columbia neglected to renew its copyright and so today the soul of a monster is in the public domain
0: so folks if it's in the public domain that means it's on our youtube playlist which you can find at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss the soul of a monster from 1944 directed by will jason
1: see you on the other side everybody Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Soul of a Monster from 1944, directed by Will Jason. So, Sarah, what did you think of this?
0: Is this our first It Was All a Dream film?
1: <sighs> um, I, maybe?
0: Besides maybe some of those, um, like anthology? really may,
1: Or like... Maybe yeah.
0: one of the eerie tales, you know? Yeah,
1: like or the really early like melies kind of stuff maybe did that once yeah or or no you know what it was um avenging conscience was all a dream was it yeah
0: i don't remember much about avenging conscience i mean it was like episode one scene. it was
1: like episode 2 so i
0: think it's like yeah that was a while ago um i was really into this movie it had a lot of energy mm-hmm. especially in like the first third mm-hmm. um it kind of settled into its own thing, and I think it's a little vague at times.
1: Well, yeah, I have I have a whole thing about that to talk about.
0: Fantastic! I love it when the, you have whole things to talk about. This
1: movie is going to give me an opportunity to talk about so many things that bother me, <laughs> um, like about
0: the movie or about no like things in general things
1: in general. Okay, yeah, um, but this movie, I don't think it was a hundred percent a good movie. Yeah. But it was much better than what I was expecting going in
0: I agree, um, and I think like the energy that it started off with really helped with that,
1: yeah, helped carry you through the rest of it yeah well, and but- like well, and like coming from a first time director uh actors who are either first time actors or like over the hill actors you know, um, an inexperienced screenwriter, like, no budget, like, all this stuff that kind of is thrown together to say, like, this should be garbage. But it felt like everyone making this movie was trying to make something special or thought that they were making something special, even if maybe they didn't have the talent to, like, 100% pull that off.
0: They felt kind of, like, scrappy, you know, like, Mm. scrappy go-getters.
1: Well, and it also kind of had a bit of... um, What I would, you know, if this was a more modern film, what I would identify as, like, that kind of film school, student film vibe of, like, (laughs) having something to prove. Like, throwing everything you know how to do into one movie to, like, really impress people. Including, like, a lot of, like, overblown symbolism.
0: I mean, it wasn't as uh, overblown as um, The Fall of the House of Usher from, like... The 1920s. Right. Whenever.
1: But that was like film philosophers making a movie. This <laughs> is film students. students. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell us what it's about? All right. So I think the central disconnect that any audience is going to have with the soul of a monster is that anyone who watches this, you have heard this story a million times and you know what's going on, but the movie tries to play it like it's a mystery And, like, as if none of the characters can figure it out. And that they're, like, trying to remember, like, oh, I think I maybe heard this story once, but I just can't. What was that story? (laughs) Anyways. Okay.
0: this, This whole movie, honestly, would make a really good Twilight Zone
1: episode. Well, that's the thing. It's this bizarre equal parts mix of, like, an episode of a radio horror anthology show, yeah. right, to be, like, period specific, a Val Luton ripoff, yeah. and then, like, a Jack Chick tract. A what? Okay, so Jack Chick Tracts are these little comic book pamphlets that are really common mostly in the American South. They are these little comic books that would get handed out by, like, fundamentalist Christian houses instead of candy on Halloween and shit like that, where um, they're comics that were, I think, originally done by a guy named Jack Chick, but, like, eventually he would outsource to, like, other artists, and they're, they're Christian propaganda. And they basically... You know, they'll be like, oh, here's why Disco is evil, or here's why Dungeons & Dragons is evil, or here's why (laughs) Star Wars is evil, right? And the basic premise of kind of all of them is that the characters have never heard of Jesus Christ, (laughs) or, like, Christianity, or the Bible. And, like, so the way that they get, like, pulled away from evil at the end of all of them is, like... Learning. Yeah, somebody comes up to them and is like, hey, instead of Star Wars, why not... Jesus and people are like, oh, I never thought of that before. I I've never, never thought of
0: Jesus instead yeah. of Star Wars. Yeah,
1: like, I, who's this Jesus guy? As if like Christianity has not Is been like he the like driving Obi-Wan? right exactly. As if Christianity hasn't been like the driving factor of like the majority <laughs> of Western history and culture for the past two thousand years. Anyways, Is he who? Right. <laughs> so it's like that. Um, I
0: would agree. It's... Okay. Oh boy, I'm so excited for this.
1: So, we open the movie learning about Dr. George Winston, who is dying. He is dying of an infection. And the movie has a bunch of random nobodies on the street picking up newspapers and reacting to this over and over and over again to drill in our heads that Dr. Winston is a very good person. He does, like, surgery for free. And he's dying of an infection and nothing any science has tried can cure him. And also this, like, really, like, angry, cynical, um, bitter kind of thing about, like, and this is really strong in the first moments of the movie, about, like, good people die and monsters live and isn't the world shitty because of that? Like, this really weird feeling that I get that the screenwriter's, like, working through a crisis of faith that, like, they were having when they wrote this movie. Like, I don't know almost any biographical details about, like, Edward Dean... But if you told me that, like, his brother died in World War II, you know, a week before he wrote this, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Right? Anyways, so Dr. Winston's dying. Nobody can do anything to help him. And we go to his deathbed. He's got um, his medical aide, Dr. Vance, who's played by Jim Bannon. And Dr. Vance, you know, there's nothing he can do. He's also got a friend of his named Stevens. Fred Stevens who is played by Eric Rolfe, and Stevens is always dressed in, like, a pinstripe suit, and his profession is never named. He is there as some kind of spiritual counselor, and he is often encouraging Winston's wife, Anne, who's played by Jeanne Bates, to pray and later in the movie, he leads like a boys' choir at his home. So, every cultural contextual clue that you have being a human who lives on planet Earth would say, oh, he's a priest. Like, he's here because he, this guy's about to die and he's their friend and he's a priest. But no one ever says he's a priest, no one calls him Father Stevens. Nothing. It's bizarre.
0: Yeah, he doesn't even have, like, a priest collar type no. deal. No. The closest you get to, I guess, iconography is he carries around a crucifix.
1: Right, which will be way later in the movie. Yeah. Um, and the movie goes out of its way to, like, he, he encourages, you know, uh, Anne is very upset because Winston's dying and nothing Dr. Vance, you know, so science, could do has helped and nothing Stevens, so, you know, like, spirituality could do has helped. And she's railing against the world and Stevens is encouraging her to pray. And the movie goes out of its way to be like vague about who she's praying to. Yeah. And at, at first, like they'll, they, they repeatedly use phrases like a superior force or a higher being or a, you know, supreme power. Um, and at first I thought this was like some sort of weird production code thing about not wanting to like favor any one religion over another But I think it's 100% something entirely different. And it'll be something I can talk about more in discussion. Okay. But regardless, he's encouraging her to pray. And she's like, fuck that. I've been praying for weeks. It hasn't done shit. Like, I've prayed to him, this vague superior force, and he failed. Like, my husband's dying. Fuck it. You know what? I've heard stories about the devil... People say he's really shitty, but maybe he just got a raw deal. I'm going to pray to him and see what the fuck happens. So what happens is this woman comes in out of the night. And um, her name, although no one will ever ask her her name, we will never hear her full name. People will just start referring to her by her first name like midway through the movie. Um, but I know her full name from the credits. It's Lillian Gregg, and she's played by Rose Hobart. It's Lillian Gregg gets the best entrance of, like, any character in a horror movie that we've seen for ages now.
0: Yeah, it was... This is the energetic part that really hooked me.
1: So she walks in out of the night, and the first thing that happens is she walks out onto the street in front of a car that's coming right at her that just kind of goes through her. Like, the car stops, the people who are driving it are convinced they've run her over, but they turn around, they look, and there's just nothing there. And then the next time we see her, she's walking down a sidewalk with an extreme Dutch angle like it's the Batman television series. <laughs> and a fucking, like, telephone wire just explodes as she walks by it. And then the Dutch angle switches to the opposite Dutch angle. Um, you know, she walks by, like, a uh, uh, some guy's doing, like, electrical work in the sewers and just everything goes fucking haywire. Like, so you know that something's up with this gal. She wears, um, like, very 1940s, like, big shoulder pad dresses.
0: Very sharp angles. Very
1: sharp angles. And she has her hair done up in this hairdo that kind of swoops her hair up to either side of her head. You know, like Like horns. horns. So... (laughs) uh,
0: They're being really subtle.
1: Yeah. The whole time that she's walking to the house, by the way, because she's walking to Dr. Winston's house... Uh, the voiceover of Anne saying like, oh, I'm praying to the devil. If only the devil would help, like repeats over and over, just in case you couldn't follow things. (laughs) This movie's really convinced you cannot follow. It's extremely subtle and original story. So she arrives and Rose Hobart as this character is uh, fantastic, uh, everything about her is great. She's immediately super condescending to everyone. And she's just like, Hey, you asked for my help. And everyone's like, what? No, I didn't ask for you. And she's like, yeah, of course you did. Shoes everyone out of the room. Is like, yeah, I'm going to save him. Goes into the room with Dr. Winston, closes the door. And in the morning, Winston is alive and he's fixed. No one has asked her who she is, where she came from, or how <laughs> she fixed him. Yeah. But he's fixed. And it's just this big mystery. And six weeks pass and she spends all that time with Winston. And Anne's like yeah, I don't know, something's wrong with him, like, he's, he's cruel now, and he, 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 it's like, he, he, he's, he's like an animal, like, I don't know, and, you know, uh, Stevens tries to, like, approach his friend, and Winston's like, ah, fuck off, and he's like, super, Winston's, like, super mean to his dog now, which was, like, weird, because again, they stressed at the start of the movie, like, this guy's a saint, and then, like, he kills his dog.
0: Yeah, the dog does die in this one.
1: right. Winson's acting increasingly strange, you know, thunderstorms follow him around. Um, <laughs> his attitude towards people is like very cruel and curt. Finally, he starts hearing voices, uh, specifically Lillian's voice saying, Dr. Winson, come to me. And he just kind of ups and leaves and goes to Lillian. And he starts staying with her at like her apartment And, you know, Anne tries to go to him and tries to get him back from Lillian. And Lillian's like, yeah, you wanted him saved, so I saved him. And she's like, well, not like this, though. Not like this. Like, if I had known he was going to leave me, I would have rather he had died. And... (laughs) Which is like, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And then Stevens is, like, waiting outside the apartment building and is, like, spying on them. And... You get the sense that Stevens being some sort of spiritual man of some kind has a pretty good idea of who Lillian is and what's happened to Winston, but he doesn't ever say this out loud or spell it out. And the movie keeps playing it like it's a mystery, but like, so Lillian, yeah, Lillian's Satan and she, you know, brought Winston back to life. He was supposed to die and now Winston has no soul. Yeah. He's just like a soulless shell. Yeah. It's real obvious. Anyway, so.
0: Actually, I think there was a Twilight Zone episode about this.
1: I'm. I think if I threw a dart at a bookcase, I would find this story. <laughs> so, because Stevens is hanging around and Lillian knows that he knows that she knows what is going <laughs> on, uh, she realizes she has to get rid of him. Um, because, you know, of course the thing that the devil is going to be afraid of is, is faith, right? And a man of faith. So she mind controls Winson into getting an ice pick from the freezer and going downstairs to go kill Stevens. And Stevens- An ice pick
0: for like breaking up ice cubes, not like going mountaineering. He's right. not Laura crafting it, you know?
1: Yeah. The kind of ice pick one would have in their freezer in the kitchen in a house.
0: I just thought it would be good to clarify.
1: Fair, fair, fair. (laughs) So Stevens decides to walk home. And so Winston walks after him. And we get, you know, like a very Val Lewton-inspired stalking scene. Like you would have gotten in Cat People or uh, The Leopard Man. and it
0: goes on for like... 20
1: 20? minutes. 20? I don't know if it's literally 20 minutes, but it's...
0: It's long. It's
1: a chunk of time. Um, And this is the thing... It's a good okay. It's good. It's a good stalking scene. They have picked up all the right clues from Luton on what to do. The sound design, the cinematography, the editing, the, the jump music, scares. right. The problem is it goes on too long. Mm-hmm. There isn't just a Luton bus in this scene. There's three Luton buses throughout. And it's like, once, the, you know, the thing about the Luton bus is it dissolves the tension in the scene because it's this fake scare. So you can't just keep doing it because, like, by the time they've done it three times, like, we had, you know, we were on the edge of our seat at the start of this. And by the end, you're just like, yeah, okay, come on. He follows him for blocks. It just keeps going. And finally, when he finally catches up to him with the ice pick, Stevens turns around to look at him and he's got his crucifix and Winston pulls a Dracula and is just like ah and runs away. Yeah. Later, Stevens confronts Winston and they have a conversation that basically is Stevens saying, "Hey, so you just tried to kill me and I've read Faust, so we all know what's going on here," except without saying that. Yeah. Like just trying to say that without saying it. And it's it's really bizarre. The other thing about Stevens is he never seems to feel like he's in any real danger, which makes a kind of sense if he's a man of faith. Like, he just has this supreme confidence that, like, Lillian's gonna fail and everything's gonna work out in the end, because that's how Christianity works. (laughs) Meanwhile, at Winston's medical practice, things have been getting a little bit testy between him and Dr. Vance, um... You know Vance has noticed that Winston doesn't really give a shit about anything anymore. Uh, he's also noticed that Winston has no pulse that you know <laughs> if you cut him, he does not bleed um things like this. Meanwhile, Winston is getting like really confrontational with Vance about like you know, oh, you're trying to steal my practice and like shit like this, and specifically Lillian's trying to like goad him on right like to say. Vance isn't really your friend. Like the reason why he couldn't do anything to save you isn't because he couldn't. It's because he wanted you to die so that he could take over your practice. You should probably just kill Vance. And she can't quite get Winston to go that far. Um, But Vance is definitely getting suspicious. You know, he doesn't have the same spiritual suspicions that Stevens does, but he's got some like hard science suspicions. Like you don't have any pulse. And when I cut you, you didn't bleed, which he repeats three or four times in different scenes. So, obviously, Vance needs to be gotten out of the picture. So Lillian runs him over with a car.
0: Yeah, yeah. This
1: doesn't kill Vance. And I guess it's because, at the end of the day, like, Satan doesn't win if Satan just does stuff, right? Like, that's not a victory for Satan. Satan has to make you do bad things. That's Satan's victory, right? So, Vance wants Winston to perform whatever surgery is going to save his life, they don't really spec. like, he's on a bed and has a bed sheet up to his neck and they just keep saying, like, he that Winston has to act soon to save Vance's life and he's got, like, a scalpel in one hand. Like, is he going to amputate something? Like, he's going to need more than a scalpel if he's <laughs> going to amputate something. And, like, something. there's no blood anywhere, so it's not like he's trying to stem blood loss. I have no idea. I, I have a feeling the screenwriter doesn't really either, which is why this is all being kept vague. The point is, Winston needs to save his life and he needs to act fast and Vance has put himself in Winston's hands because Winston is such a good doctor and Vance has known him for years and he trusts him. And right when Winston's about to act, Lillian's voice comes in and is like, just don't do it. Just let him die. And so Winston does. Which leads to Winston, you know, getting charged with murder uh, for not acting. Um, And basically he's found guilty. They're going to give him the chair. Everything's gone wrong. So Winston goes to Stevens and he's like, you know, you got to do something to help me. And Stevens like, Oh, I already have. And (laughs) he's like, well, but what do I need to do? And it's like, well, that's up to you to decide. And like, you know, it's, it's what the movie's trying to do is to say that like for Winston to save his soul, like he has to be the one to do something, not Stevens because like, you know, God gives us free will for a reason and blah, blah, blah. But they're not saying any of that. Stevens does give a speech at this point about like the man who doesn't have any faith has nothing basically. And then Anne asks like, you know, what can she do to help? And Stevens is like, Oh, just pray for him. So Stevens gives this speech to Winston about like, you know, the man who doesn't have faith is alone. And then we cut to Anne in the church praying and she gives the exact same speech word for word in her prayer and Winston goes to Lillian. I've figured you out. Like, you you have no power against the truth. I know what you are. Like, you, there's nothing you can do to, like, stop me now. Like, I'm everything... I have faith now and knowledge, and you're powerless against such things. And Lillian's like, right, or maybe... You kill yourself because you're so upset about causing your friend's death. <laughs> and I just vanish into the night. And then she pulls a gun on him and shoots him a bunch of times. And it doesn't seem to do anything. And he just comes at her. And then the editing gets real confusing. And I think what was supposed to have happened is the, he pushed her out of a window. And they both fell onto the street. And then she dies from the fall Maybe. And just as you're going, wait, that doesn't make sense, it turns out this was all a dream. Yeah. And that Winston is still on his deathbed from the start of the movie. And maybe, you know, it's all a dream, given the religious underpinnings of this movie is a bit of a um, oversimplification. You know, if I'm being charitable, we can say this was all a premonition of what might happen if whatever. But we're at the moment where Anne is about to be like, Fuck God, I'm a tr- I'm a prey to Satan. We're right back at that moment. And Winston wakes up from his deathbed and is like, No, Anne, remember the Bible. <laughs> yes! And he quotes the oh. Bible. And this is the first time in the movie that, like, really specific biblical stuff is being said and quoted and brought up, other than seeing the crucifix earlier. And he quotes a passage from the New Testament, and then I think he dies. Yeah. Because you know, this was his time and he was supposed to die then. And that's the happy ending. The end. Yeah. So listen, I okay, I was getting a little <laughs> sassy there. I do like this movie. It's just a very conditional use of the word like, okay?
0: I agree. Um I I there are moments where you're just like it's so strange. It'll take you through these very energetic moments, like the introduction of Lillian. Um, then it drags its heels with um, the stalking scene, with scenes where you can tell the director's a composer because they're hearing full renditions of certain songs.
1: Yeah, they, they go to a friend who's a pianist's house, and he performs two pieces on the piano while, like, thunder and lightning is happening, and then, like... Um, Stevens has this boys choir that he like rehearses with at his house and they're doing Ave Maria in case you couldn't figure out that this was a Christian movie and they don't just like do like a little bit of it so that you as an audience member who lives in the world can go, ah, Ave Maria. (laughs) They do the whole fucking hymn. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you can, I, I was asking the universe, like I wonder what kind of storytelling things or artistic things Mm. overlap between being a composer and being a director. In this case, it's getting to put whole songs into your movie. Yeah. That's the only overlap explicitly shown here. And I think that like, you can tell that Will Jason has competency as a director. Um, and you can tell that he is very experienced with directing shorts because the moments of this movie that feel, um, Like they've dragged on or like the pacing is odd Um, or where we're getting certain things repeated to us several times. There's moments where we get shot like close-ups of people reacting in kind of what feels like an anime type of way or a melodramatic type of way. Yeah,
1: it's very melodramatic, that's for sure.
0: Um, But I think he's just doing what he always does for shorts, but he has to do it either more frequently or for longer to make it a feature.
1: Yeah, there's, it's this weird feeling of...
0: Stretch it out.
1: Yes, like, that's <laughs> the thing. Like, this is a, uh, this is a movie, like, okay, if the story of this movie was in a horror anthology comic book of the 1940s, yeah. it would be five pages. If this was an episode of a horror anthology radio series from the 1940s, it would be... 22 minutes and they have to get it to be an hour, uh, which is what, how long this movie is, by the way, 60 minutes. Um, <laughs> and you can tell that they struggle with it. Like Jason struggling with it because he's a director of shorts and he's not quite sure, you know how to do that unless it's just doing it more. So people repeat things line for line to each other in different scenes over and over again. And, and, and the, the stalking scene goes on for an absurd amount of time.
0: What's interesting to me, to compare this film with, I don't know, some other, like, a Poverty Row flick, mm. where we can tell that they're, like, padding for time, Right. is this film still manages to kind of keep me interested. It, it does something that kind of keeps me with it. It doesn't pad out time with, like, I'm walking over here to get my pen, and then walking back over to right. sign yes. the check. Um, checking addresses several times. Like... They're padding out time with the stalking scene. And, like, even before the first Luton bus, Mm -hmm. it's a bit of a long stalking scene. And so you're on edge and the tension's there. Um, So I guess what I'm trying to say here is they're padding out time doing things correctly. That's why I think, like, it would make a really, really good short.
1: Yeah. Well, there's ambition on display here, right? That's the other difference between this and a Poverty Row feature, usually. Or even last week's, like... Well, Cry the Werewolf had a little bit of ambition as well, but like I think that's the thing is in so many poverty row movies you can feel like nobody making the movie cared. Yeah. I think everyone in this movie cared. They really wanted to make something good. It's just like this movie is as amazing and interesting as it is flawed and boring. Mm-hmm. Like for every moment that makes you sit up and pay attention, there's a moment that makes you roll your eyes or scream get on with it. <laughs>
0: yeah and I think um one thing that I definitely dock this movie for is being too vague with Lillian, the idea of faith, things like that, um all the things you've pointed out in the plot summary mm-hmm. um I think it's too vague for its own good um and I mean part of this I can't really fault the movie for this, but um there's when Stevens is like waiting outside Lillian's apartment and This is right before the stalking scene when, uh, Winston goes after him. He's standing by a lamppost. Right. And with him being like, quote unquote, a priest, like a... It's very
1: the exorcist.
0: Yeah. And so I wanted a bit more, I wanted something a bit more. I wanted more of an explicit Christianity versus the devil, maybe even a crisis of faith. Like, obviously, we don't need to go full Exorcist, because that movie's made in a completely different context than mm -hmm. this movie, but, like, just something to create a little bit more of an edge.
1: So, you know what this movie, where this movie's kind of central flaws are coming from, that we're identifying, at least this is my theory, is this movie has a lot in common with, if you have ever read a lot of, like, morality tale literature, either Christian fiction... Or any fiction that is beholden to, like, a specific philosophical worldview. Like, there's a lot in this movie that reminds me of, like, the Left Behind series. Sure. And the way it depicts, like, people.
0: It assumes you know it's theology or philosophy.
1: Well, there's just these, like, very specific weird little tells that always come up in these movies. Like, people not acting like people because they're... Actually, they're not characters. They are, you know, representations of various, like, points of view. Like, Anne is a representation of the person who has, like, lost faith in the church. And Stevens is the perfect priest who has absolute confidence in God and faith because he knows they're real. You know, like, Vance represents science and the materialist, right? Like, they aren't people. They're mouthpieces. Because you know, if you want to compare this to the exorcist, one of the differences is like Stevens does nothing to fight Lillian. He talks to her. He talks to, uh, Winston. He talks to Vance, but he never says like, Oh, she's Satan. And she, and he has no soul. Like he just nudges people in the directions they need to go. And he never feels threatened or scared of what's going on around him. He doesn't have like, a lot of energy. I mean, part of this is the performance. Eric Rolfe has a wonderful voice, but he is very flat.
0: Is he the one who came from radio Place?
1: No, that was Jim Bannon who played Vance. Okay. Stevens is so confident in his faith and knows what's going on so early without saying it, that he's very ineffective as a viewpoint character, even though the movie uses him as one for a long stretch. A real, like if you were really a Christian priest and you were suddenly confronted with very real evidence that the devil was real and right there in front of you, I feel like you would feel like it's your duty to uh, fight the devil. That would be a normal human reaction. But Stevens isn't a human. He is a a morality tale archetype. So he knows that because God is real, we have nothing to fear from the devil so long as we have faith. So he just sits back, right? Which is this really weird thing to see a person do. Especially in a horror movie. Right. Like...
0: Especially when he's the target who's being stalked at night.
1: Yeah. Like, okay. Rose Hobart? Fantastic. As Lillian. She is this incredibly good, modern, 1940s expression of the devil. Yeah. I really like her whole deal. George McCready gives a really good performance, I think, as the soulless, resurrected George Winston. He's really good as well. I've already said that Eric Rolfe is not so good, Jan Bates, she would have made a much better POV character. Yeah. Because, you know, she's the one who called the devil in to rescue her husband, who is now like a weird zombie man. Right. Yeah. But she just disappears for a long stretch (laughs) of the movie.
0: Yeah. When we need to focus on Stevens and Mm fans.
1: Um,
0: yeah. So this is yet another example.
1: Like the third in a row now, right? It would have been better from the lady's point of view. Right. Now, that being said, when we do see her, she spends far too much time just wailing and bemoaning. And it gets that gets really old really fast. Well, because she's
0: the person who's going through a crisis of faith. Right. And the character growth with that is to suddenly not be. Right, to go to her, church. Her, her praying at the church at the end, yeah.
1: Um, the thing that you see in a lot of, like, didactic writing in, like, morality tales or whatever, is people acting, you know, and I talked about this with the Chick Tracks, but people trying to act like it's all, like, so mysterious and, like, what could possibly be happening and trying to, like, withhold information because, you know, it's she's the devil and you just need to pray to Jesus, right? I've seen this so many times in other things where it's, like, the answer to the problem is obvious, but the characters can't hit upon it yet because... Then the movie would be over. Yeah. Right? Um,
0: And then the fact that this movie is already kind of stretching things out mm -hmm. makes it a little frustrating.
1: The movie gets away with a lot of things that are not plausible through the movie trick of, like, cutting away to several days later. Like, for example, Lillian showing up. Yeah. Out of nowhere and healing Winston. We never see anybody ask her, like, who the fuck are you and what the fuck did you do? Why are you still here? But because we cut to six weeks later, we it would be weird to six weeks later have someone be like, who are you? So we just get to, like, avoid the problem by, like, cutting to much later. It's It's like in movies when people say, like, I have something to show you, and then they cut to, like they've gone all the way across town and he's showing him the thing. And you're like, what did you talk about on the way over? This movie does a lot of (laughs) that. Um,
0: It also like, even just with its basic structure of it was all a dream mm -hmm. helps hand wave
1: that away. away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My theory here is that the writer thought he was being clever by sneaking in Christian ethics into his horror movie script. The same way that like Gene Roddenberry sneaks humanist, secularist uh, ethics into his Star Trek script so he he's trying to like be like oh let's not be obvious by saying god or satan we'll play it like it's a big reveal when they say the bible at the end um, <laughs> they really do play it that way even and though like what <laughs> a majority of the american movie going audience in 1944 would be christians and Everyone throughout the movie saying, oh, a supreme force or struggling to remember the story of Faust, because if we say the word Faust out loud, it just gives the whole game away, you know, or, or pretending to, like, th- believe that, like, what's happening to George is this mysterious thing, you know, <laughs> or, or Stevens being, like, this non-specific spiritualist. Um, none of that feels like the real world. Like, none of that feels like how people actually talk or act.
0: What's strange is like the movie itself because it's couched in this framing narrative. Mm-hmm. You could maybe sort of like if you wanted to be reductive, hand wave away a lot of these right. things except we open with oh doctor winston he wouldn't hurt a fly like these over the top exclamations of how much of a saint he is.
1: Right, which happens before we get to the part that would be theoretically the dream. Yeah. Yeah, I think the It's All a Dream ending does help hand wave away some of the, like, unrealistic nature of the way the characters are written. It also might be the only ending that the writer felt he could go with because, on the one hand, you can't have a movie, especially a production code movie, but, like, you cannot have a movie where the devil wins. But on the other hand... You can't just defeat the devil like she's Dracula. Right? <laughs> like it doesn't like he can't just stake Lillian and I've defeated Satan. Yeah. So, you know, there's so the movie has this weird ending where he like pushes her out of a window and it's like, "Wait, did you just kill Satan? That doesn't make any sense." And, then, "Oh, okay, it's all a dream." Yeah. Right? So that we can both defeat the bad guy but also not be like, "Hey, we killed Satan in our movie" cuz that would be fucking weird.
0: Yeah, it also has like a You know how with Mm vampire, where we're like, oh, like, she dies at the end, but she's saved, her soul is saved from the vampire. Yeah. So it's... It's a happy ending. Yeah. I feel like they're trying to do something similar here. Obviously not as well, though.
1: Yeah, the the, the basic message of this movie is, like, God has a plan, so, you know, if you're going to die, that's your time to die, and trying to fight against that is, like, morally wrong. That's... That's the essential message of this movie. And, I mean, saying it that way makes it sound real bad. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it does. Well, there's a lot of stories where the message of the story is, like, trying to circumvent death is wrong, right? Like, that's the basic story of um, Lord of the Rings, for instance.
0: For sure. But, I mean, like, when it's trying to be this morality play, and even Stevens, like, doesn't act. He just tries to nudge Mm -hmm. as if, like...
1: Well, because he's Gandalf.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well... Sure, but at least with Gandalf, you see his frustration with that.
1: Yeah, you like, know, like, St- Stevens would make more sense if he was, like, because the thing about Gandalf is also, Gandalf isn't, like, a priest. He's not a cleric. He's literally
0: an a- he's angel. He's literally
1: an angel. Like, Stevens would make more sense if he was an angel and Lillian was the devil.
0: Let's just get, like, the bishop's wife up in here. Let's just, like...
1: <laughs> yeah, because, like, as a just a dude, Stevens doesn't have, like... A recognizable human psychology yeah um but the things that are good about this movie is like they go for it on the cinematography right there's really good shadowy dark cinematography in here they, they do a
0: neat thing with the lighting where one of the jump scares that we've talked about is um the subway going past mm-hmm. and when we see the the actual train going by its stock footage but in the shot where it has Stevens in it, there's lights, like the, the lights of the train window going through. And that was a really neat effect. That would have yeah. taken some time.
1: Yeah, they do a lot of really good lighting stuff. There's a lot of interesting framing. Um, the editing in certain scenes is really good. You can tell watching this that they wanted to make a good movie. And there are parts of this movie that are very good.
0: I think, you know, so this was like a double feature mm-hmm. with Crive the Werewolf. And I think Columbia took Will, Jason, and Henry Levin, sat them down, and was like, listen, as like the studio heads chomping on a cigar, I want you to make cat people, but not cat people. Like, right. Specifically cat people, like, yeah. I feel like, is yeah. the Luton film. They were told to copy. And also what's Leopard Man, maybe? Maybe. Yeah. So Like in general, Luton, but like I feel like they would have pointed to cat people because yeah. it's the most successful. Um, And we saw Levin's version of it, he did all right. Um, I think Jason did really, really well here. Um, I think it's really interesting to think at like think about how each director took something kind of different.
1: Yeah, there's the same feeling of copying from Luton, while not a hundred percent understanding why Luton uses the techniques he does.
0: Yeah, and they like these two movies aren't very similar. No, you know, so I think that's really interesting.
1: Well, Cry of the Werewolf is like halfway between the universal school and the RKO school, right? Yeah. It's like RKO filmmaking style put on this universal style plot, right? Whereas um, The Soul of a Monster has a much more Luton-style plot in the sense of, like, it's set in a modern city with modern people in a modern world, and it has a much more, like, story that's based around, like, character and psychology than monsters and, you know, supernatural gobbledygook.
0: Yeah, it felt more, um, adult-oriented.
1: It's, it's, you know, it has it has the feeling of, um, Seventh Victim.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's what I mean by, like, adult-oriented, whereas Cry of the Werewolf, maybe it's the, the universal flavor that you're picking up, where it's like, this is kind of maybe a little bit for kids.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's more of a drive-in movie, right? Yeah. Soul of the Monster feels like it wants to be a real serious movie. The thing that makes Soul of the Monster feel weird when you compare it to Luton movies is that the underlying philosophy is different. Mm -hmm. Both Luton and soul of a monster are in a camp that says it's good to die. But the reason why is extremely different. Yeah. Luton has this nihilistic view of like the world and is basically espousing in his movies the idea that, like, death is oblivion. Death is nothing. But that is inherently better than suffering through this fucking planet. And this movie has a more, you know, obviously traditionally Christian viewpoint where it's okay to die because as long as you, you know, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will go to heaven and be saved and be in paradise and have this, like, wonderful, blessed, you know, eternity after death. Yeah. But in both cases, it's okay to die. But it's this weird disconnect of, like, it's a lot harder, I think, to do...
0: A nihilistic movie than a Christian movie?
1: No, the opposite, at least in the horror genre. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, yeah. it's a lot harder, and and this is, I think, where you were right about, like, we if making Stevens the, like, POV character instead of Gene was stupid. Like, there's a reason why in The Exorcist... Our lead character isn't Eric von Sydow. Yeah, not the old
0: established priest. It's It's the the new guy.
1: Who's having the crisis of faith very explicitly. Because if you are 100% sure that God's going to save you, and also 100% sure that if God doesn't, you're going to heaven, so everything's fine anyways, where's the horror? There's nothing to be afraid of in that universe, right? Yeah. So you have to either be in a universe where death is a bad thing, which is your Luton, you know, where death is, is terrifying. Or you have to be in a universe where you're not sure what's going to come. Yeah. Right? And I think that's the thing that makes this movie fall down a little bit, as well as trying to pretend like everyone in the audience doesn't know what the Bible is.
0: Yeah. So where would you like to rank this?
1: So this movie um, really impressed me. Because it was much better than what my expectations were. Yeah. But by the end, the kind of like stubborn refusal of this movie to <laughs> tell its story in a like believable fashion and kind of have this like stubborn Jack Chick tracked style really brought my opinion of it down. So my range is a little all over the place. Okay. I started by looking at where we have La Main du Diable. On the list okay because that seemed like a reasonable place to look <laughs> right it's also a pretentious movie about selling your soul <laughs> to the devil so we have the main de diablo at number 55 right below it is the 1935 student of Prague, another movie about selling your soul <laughs> to the devil so okay maybe this is worse than those because at least those movies admit that you're selling your soul to the devil and not just that like This mysterious woman showed up, and who knows? Right below the 1934 Student of Prague is Ghost of Frankenstein. This is much better than Ghost of Frankenstein. Ghost of Frankenstein is trash. Yeah. So my floor is number 57, below Student of Prague 1935. So then it's like, okay, let's work our way up. How high can this go? So I'm looking, I'm looking, it's like, okay, you know, Unheimlich Geschichten, that's an interesting thing to compare to this, that sort of, you know, dreamlike horror anthology kind of feel. Oh, right above that is the original nineteen thirteen student of Prague. Okay, another thing. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Keep going up. Okay, well, Dead Men Walk. That was some bad poverty road nonsense, so let's keep going.
0: Really? You're, so you're I, still going so up. So I
1: I keep looking up and it's like, well, Captive Wild Woman is like fifty percent stock footage.
0: Oh my god, okay, you
1: i think things so much, Ben. Let's keep going. So I kept moving up by, like, force of, like, like a buoyant sort of, you know, thing rising through the sea until I hit the 1926 Student of Prague, which was sort of another good, like, sell your soul to the devil touchstone. And I said, "Mm, okay, wait, I've gone too far. Yes. That's clearly better. Okay, what's right below that? The Black Room. Okay, that's clearly better. What's below that? Well, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, which honestly isn't great. So, my range is 36 to 57.
0: Buddy. Okay, so I was kind of with you in the beginning, and then I I just tapped out. So...
1: Well, what's my, your range?
0: My ceiling is Le main du Diablo.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Because, um, yeah, it, it just felt right. Mm-hmm. Not only because of the, like, similarities in the story, but it just, like...
1: The similarities and the pretentiousness, Uh uh-huh.
0: Yeah, and, like, above that is the Mummy's Tomb, which was, like, just reinvigorated the Mummy franchise with some energy.
1: Yeah, for, like, 60 minutes. And then
0: it completely faltered. 60 minutes a full movie. (laughs) Right. Rather than this movie, where was the first third that had energy? Um, So, yeah, number 55 is my ceiling. And then I went down, and I knew that this movie was definitely better than The Return of Dr. X. Okay, yeah. And so then, above that is The Mad Monster. This movie's definitely better than that. For sure. It's better than Voodoo Man. Uh-huh. The Invisible Man's Revenge, I'm not too sure about. Because that was quite interesting. Um, you know, it, it was a unique film in the Invisible Man franchise, in that it's like not someone who's related to someone who's invented invisibility, um, he's doing it to wreak revenge, and I had some neat special effects. So my range is 55 to 64, the Invisible Man's Revenge.
1: So my your ceiling's 55, my floor is 57. That's a pretty small overlap, so... I can
0: work within there if you...
1: For if sure, you'd to. I yeah. think, let's talk about this versus the 35 student of Prague then. Cool. Because that's kind of what's right in the middle there.
0: I found the 1935 Student of Prague, that's the one made in Nazi times, Mm -hmm. um, to be rather toothless compared to the other Student of Prague. That's why I think it's the lowest of them, uh, lowest ranking of them. It's fine,
1: but like,
0: yeah. And it's interesting to compare it with The Soul of a Monster because I feel like the people making that Student of Prague, like, they know people coming to see it, know the story, there are moments where they're just kind of going through the motions, because they're like, yeah, we know that this is the next step of the thing, um, they're not, like, charging forward on a new path, they're just, like, going through the motions, stepping in the, you know, prints in the snow that have already been made. This is, Soul of a Monster is trying to do something new, it's copying Luton's style, but doing it in a very interesting way. It was really charging forward, especially in the first third. The introduction of Lillian, um, its use of lighting and other cinematography. Even things. some
1: of the dialogue is really good. It gets yes. the style of dialogue it has, which is this very like heightened, like philosophical debate style, gets really tiresome by the end of the movie because you just want someone to like talk like a normal fucking human. But when it's good, it's good.
0: Yeah, so in my opinion, Soul of a Monster should go above the
1: Thirty Five Student of Prague. You know, it's been a while since we've seen Thirty-Five Student Prague. I remember really liking Anton Walbrook's performance in it. I remember liking some of the special effects. It's 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 weak in my memory, so it's hard for me to judge this against it. But this movie wasn't made by Nazis, so I'm pretty cool with putting it above. Cool. Alright. So entering the list at number fifty-six, the soul. Of a Monster, from 1944, directed by Will Jason.
0: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we may have mentioned today, as well as an appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can do so by submitting through our Ask box on Tumblr, or emailing us directly at screamscenepodcast@gmail.com. at com or just chatting with us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene.
1: Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Through our RSS feed, you can follow the show on whatever podcasting app you prefer. If your podcasting app of choice allows you to leave ratings or reviews for the podcasts you listen to, we would really appreciate it if you would do so. Give us a Five-star rating and a review that says we're the best. And uh, (laughs) we'll really appreciate that. Uh, You can also help us out by uh, spreading word of the show far and wide, whether that's on Twitter or Tumblr or Facebook or in real life. Whoever you think might be into this niche little podcast of ours, let them know. And uh, that helps us grow the audience. Mm -hmm. And growing the audience really helps out with this next part which is the financial way that you can help support the show. <laughs> um, we put uh, a good amount of time and effort into putting this thing out every week, and the time that we take to do that is offset by the financial contributions that you as the audience can make towards the show as patrons on patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. You can join up for as little as a dollar a month, and that will get you a thank you on the show, and helps go towards our... SoundCloud hosting fee, and, uh, you know, those kind of boring costs of doing business. Uh, (laughs) At $5 a month, you get access to weekly bonus audio, cut content from previous episodes, uh, jokes, bloopers, uh, long stretches of research that didn't have to do with anything at the end of the day. At $10 a month, you get access to uh, horror short fiction that I write solely for the Patreon. There's a whole library of back matter there uh and i've also started writing essays and reviews i guess you could say i wrote a piece about the movie hereditary and why i hate ghosts uh that uh just went up recently um so check that out and always remember that you can sign up at like a high level and then after a month you can drop down to a lower level if you can't you know keep up at that higher level we understand that you know nobody's made of money right now except for jeff bezos he took all of it, and there's none for us. So we, we get it. So that's patreoncom screamscenepodcast.
0: Any support is just amazing. Even just a virtual high
1: five over the Twitter sphere. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so what are we watching next week, Ben?
1: Next week, Sarah. It's um, a movie that I'm I'm pretty excited about, but have no clue if it's going to be good. We are back at Universal Studios. Okay. It's our first movie starring Boris Karloff in quite a long time. Yes. It's his Technicolor debut. Oh. And it was originally supposed to be the sequel to the 1943 Phantom of the Opera, and then they changed all the character names at the last minute.
0: Oh, well, that might be interesting, because that version of Phantom is not on the list. It's in the miscellaneous. It was bad. That too. It's
1: The Climax (laughs) from 1944. Directed by George Wagner.
0: Oh, there's probably going to be some
1: sex jokes in that one, isn't there? I think it's an apt title given that one of the complaints we had about Phantom of the Opera 43 was that it didn't have a climax. It just kind of stopped.
0: <laughs> well, join us next week, Creatures of the Night, when Karloff will finally reach a climax.
1: This has been your preview for <laughs> what I'm going to have to sit through for an hour and a half next week. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.